Welcome to the Covenant People's Ministry. Jesus once told Satan that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We invite you to study the scriptures with us to learn about the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our pastor is Mr. Jeremy Visser from Brooks, Georgia. You can contact us with your questions and comments at covenantpeoplesministry.org or simply write to Covenant People's Ministry, Post Office Box 256, Brooks, Georgia 30205. If you desire, you can also follow us on YouTube and Twitter. We would like to hear from you, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that His will will continue to reign upon us all. Once again, welcome to the Covenant People's Ministry, and here is Pastor Visser with our next Bible study. Hello again, dear kinsfolk. Thank you for joining me this Sunday morning for what will be the final sermon of 2014. Indeed, as promised, this morning we're going to be taking a deeper look at the death of Jesus Christ. So far within this series titled Lessons from Luke, I've covered the beloved physician himself, that is, the author of Luke's Gospel. The second sermon in this five-part series centers around the birth of of Jesus Christ, and several lesser-known facts pertaining to that. We followed that up this month with the youth of Jesus Christ, and in that one, I kind of filled the gaps and quoted much of the Gnostic text to prove many of the things I said in the one before it, the birth of Christ. The one we did last weekend was titled, The Life of Jesus Christ, as you would well guess. And while that one was only an hour, it was quite a feat to tackle much of the subject matter pertaining to the life of Yahshua Messiah, because the things he's done and the amount of Gospels, especially those that aren't in our canonized scripture, would lead to a year-long series itself. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the death of Jesus Christ, and I won't be using any uncanonized script. The reason for that is I really want you to understand the girth and the magnitude of the prophecies that Yahshua Messiah fulfilled with his death. Now, each and every one of us are born, we have a youth, we have a life, and we eventually die. Because after all, scripture says it is appointed to every man one time to die. And that's one thing in life that we can be assured of. However, the story of Jesus Christ could be perceived in two different ways. If you're a natural man, you'd come along and you'd say, Well, how sad it is that this man was crucified for the sins of many at the mere youthful age of 33 years old. However, if you happen to be a Christian, you will understand what that death signifies, what it represents. And so, as it stands, it's my hope this morning to actually shed more light on what Jesus' death represents. And as such, we're going to take a look at it, starting in Luke, and then also Matthew, Mark, and John's takes. So that way you'll fully understand what happened and what transpired at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But before we begin, I would like to take a moment and thank each and every one of you who have subscribed, who have listened, who have sent donations, or even made forum posts this year, 2014. 
That usually makes most of the difference in keeping a pastor inspired and keeping him wanting to bring new studies to you. The Judeo-Christian out there usually does not have anything to worry about. They have no enemies to speak of, or so they think. But the true truth-teller has much to worry about. Why? Because the world will come along and put them to death oftentimes. Not every time. But this is a dismal reality. And Christ taught no different. And so, beginning this Sunday morning, in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 23, we can begin reading in verse 44. Luke says this, And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. So what is this terminology, sixth hour? Well, that would be the equivalent of our 12 o'clock noon, approximately. But six, according to biblical numerics, denotes the number of man. So, it's quite fitting to me that it would be the sixth hour, because what Jesus Christ did, that is, willfully laying down his life, was for his beloved people Israel. So six is a good number. But it was the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over the face of the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. So understand what's being taught here. And I've taught this this year in Luke. The parents of Jesus Christ didn't fully understand. Many of the people whom Jesus Christ ministered to, healed, or cast demons out of, they didn't fully understand. There would be they who come along and say, well, he's a great man. He must be a friend of God. But even less would say he was the son of God, and even fewer still would say this is Emmanuel, God with us. But what happens here with the veil of the temple being rent in two and the sky being darkened was a sign. All around Jerusalem, and we could say the entire world for that matter, because that's actually what was happening and transpiring that day. They were putting to death the Creator. Or at least, man thought. And that is the way of man, is it not? The way of man is to think, hey, I can kill your body. Never understanding that they can't overcome you. They cannot kill your spirit. Now, if you're not aware, the lost books and the letters of Pontius Pilate and the letters from Herod and back and forth, those exchanges that are found within the quote-unquote lost books of the Bible, go on to explain how Pilate was beheaded for his choice. So while we out here oftentimes say, well, Pilate was an innocent man, he washed his hands of the entire matter, it really did not matter in the end because Pilate himself was put to death, at least according to those texts. And he was put to death because of this right here. When the ninth hour came, the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. At that point, Miriam knew, Joseph knew, the disciples knew, and the women who stood afar off, and you're going to see that they're there in almost all four accounts, knew without a doubt what had transpired and what they had done. Next verse. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So what is that? That's Yahshua Messiah reading his own last rites. Now what you're going to find interesting here is as we skip between the Gospels to cover each author's take on the death of Jesus Christ, you're going to see 
that each one brings to light a more specific prophecy than the one before it. Here, this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ, generally, just straightforwardly, saying, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Commit, or entrust. This is in keeping with Psalm 31, verse 5, Luke's own book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 59, and also the first epistle of Peter, chapter 2, verse 23. But after he does that, he gives up the ghost. Now, you may have heard within Christian identity that ghost is a very bad translation because God is not a spook. God is spirit. So another way of rendering this would be as soon as Jesus Christ read his own last rites, then he gave up the spirit and returned with Yahweh God. But there's much more that transpires. For example, he must go into the bowels of hell for three days and lead all of those Adamites out. But the purpose of today's study is not to look at the post-resurrection events of Jesus Christ, but solely the physical act of his death. So at this point, right here in St. Luke chapter 23, verse 46, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So at that exact point is when Jesus Christ dies. Next verse. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. <laughs> now consider the irony, and this also is proof of what I've been telling you, that when the veil was run into, when the sky was darkened, well, even the Romans knew something was wrong. Something they did was amiss, and they had literally pissed off Yahweh God. But he says, he glorifies Yahweh God first and foremost, and then, certainly, this was a righteous man. Even the centurion there at the foot of the cross, this quote-unquote Gentile, knew that an innocent man had been put to death. And that is why I wanted you to understand that eventually Pilate was beheaded. And I have ample amount of historical text to prove that. Why? Because it's only fitting. As Yahshua walked and taught upon the face of this earth, he taught a very simple aspect. And that is this. You will reap what you sow. Time and time again, you cannot escape that law of quote-unquote karma. And so it's only fitting that Pilate would be beheaded. And he would be beheaded for this act. Now, before he did this, before he washed his hands and said, I have no problem with this, keep in mind that Pilate had no issue siding with Herod against an innocent man, when it was all said and done, Pilate ended up reaping exactly what he sowed. That is, he was put into an early grave. He lost his position. The centurion said, This was a righteous man. Verse 48. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance, and the woman that followed him from Galilee, stood afar off, beholding these things. Now, Luke, of course, is going to go in after this point into the burial of Jesus Christ. And I taught this in part 73 this year, I believe around August or September. But Luke's take proves several points that you're going to see similarities in in the other three Gospels. And that is this, that the women who followed him from Galilee from the very beginning of his ministry were there also at the very end. So we see everything again comes full circle. 
how his birth and his death are intricately linked. Another thing is that all the people that came together to that site, they smote their breast. They realized at that point, meaning even some of the Judeans who screamed out saying, crucify him, crucify him, realized when the sky was darkened exactly who they had put to death. Exactly, most likely, the prophecies that had been fulfilled. Now, the irony, of course, is Jesus Christ came and he spent the last five days of his life in the temple of Jerusalem. He argued with them, he taught them, but he would not teach anything that was contrary to the Mosaic Law or the Septuagint. However, the traditions of men reared their ugly head, and that's exactly what the Jews were able to get Pilate to put Jesus Christ to death for. Again, all four of the letters that are found in the lost books, and there's actually more, in fact, one that was written from Pilate to Tiberius Caesar straightforwardly explains how Jesus Christ was blonde, had blue eyes, and he was different than those Judeans who wanted to see him put to death. Of course, that's a study for another day, but I can easily prove that. And if you'd like a copy of that, just post in my forum and I'll provide that for you. All the people who came to that site, what site? The site of the sky being darkened. Now, of course, you would know, I would know, and many of the elect there would have understood when it was transpiring. But what you need to understand is they were few in number. The majority one, and through the majority's pressing by screaming out, give us Barabbas, give us a murder over this teacher of truth, Pilate eventually was broken down and submitted to the will of the Jew. Submitted to the will of the Jew, and Yahweh God took his head, eventually, for the sin. Now, of course, that's not found within our Gospels, but it's easily verifiable. Now, the death of Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, begins in verse 27. So please turn there this Sunday morning. And we're going to take a look at a different prophecy that Jesus Christ fulfilled. Now, what was covered right here in Luke was simply just the Mosaic Law. And that is, commending a person's soul to Yahweh God at death and or last rites. However, Matthew chapter 27 is an entirely different take. Beginning in verse 45, Matthew writes this, Now, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now, you may have already noticed that Luke said his and worded it just a little bit differently. However, what we're seeing here, and the reason I'm covering all four takes, is so you'll understand that these are different perceptions from different men from different walks of life, all explaining their take. Is Matthew wrong in what he said? Absolutely not. And neither is Luke. And I think it'll come clear as we continue reading. Verse 46 of St. Matthew chapter 27. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, stopping right there. The ninth hour. The same exact hour that, according to Luke, Jesus Christ says, Father, I commend my body into your charge that I deliver myself unto you. That is in fulfillment of prophecy. However, here we're going to see something entirely different. The same exact hour. So what my advice is, is take them all, put them together, and Jesus Christ said all of them. But what he says here is in fulfillment of prophecy. And to me, this is extremely important, because the way of the false prophet is to come in right here, 
and say, you know what, Jesus Christ was showing his humanity. Jesus Christ was doubting God. But none of those are true. What does he say? Verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatene. So what does that mean, exactly? (laughs) Well, of course, the answer for that could be summed up in several points. Number one, Jesus Christ spoke Aramaic. Yet here he's quoting Hebrew. Quite interesting, is it not? But that provides a key. The key is, of course, that it's a Hebraic scripture. And it's the Hebraic scripture found in the 22nd Psalm. That, if time allows me this Sunday morning, we're going to take a look at it in depth because it shows the intent of Yahweh God as he hung there, his thoughts, and what his will was for the people. But it begins on that same note. Let's continue reading right here in verse 46. Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatanei. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, to my regular listener, they're probably well familiar with that, because there are false imposters who's going to come in. <laughs> they're going to claim to be Christian identity. They're going to say, hey, you know what, looky there, Jesus Christ was a coward. But that's not what's being said. What's being fulfilled here is the fifth Messianic Psalm. And it begins in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Now, the interesting thing about that is you could take that, read that, even though it was written by King David, and do one of two things. You could do like the Jew and say, Jesus Christ obviously didn't fulfill that. He was a charlatan. Or you can do like an Israelite and say, well, that's obviously proof enough to me (laughs) that Jesus Christ was reading the 22nd Psalm, which I might add ends in the statement, it is finished, as he hung in agony on the cross. Several other points from the 22nd Psalm reflecting the mind thought of Yahweh God. I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised of the people. Indeed, that is Jesus Christ who came unto his own and his own received him not. Verse 6. Also this, he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Well, that's exactly what they would say at the foot of the cross. So, back in St. Matthew chapter 27, back in verse 46... About the ninth hour, that's correct and in line with Luke. Jesus cried with a loud voice. That also is in line with the other Gospels. Eli, Eli, lama shabbatane, and that means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 47. Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calls for Elias. Interesting, huh? Elias, or Elijah. Now why would they think that? (laughs) There's been much speculation as to who the true witnesses are since the dawn of time. But they're saying, hmm, this man, after he quotes the 22nd Psalm, obviously is crying out for Elijah. Why? Because they hadn't understood fully. What's that mean? John it was, the Baptist, who was to make straight the way to Jesus Christ, came in the spirit of Elijah fulfilling that very prophecy. It had been fulfilled four years before Jesus Christ hung on the cross at Golgotha. What that means is they were standing there saying he's crying for Elijah, meaning prophecy is going to be fulfilled now because the sky was darkened. 
But after all, it was John and Jesus Christ both who taught that a wicked and a perverse generation seek after a sign, and there shall be no sign given it. Now these men this day, they saw a sign. They saw the sky darkened. They saw the veil of the temple cut in two. But why? Fulfillment of prophecy. Not because Yahweh God needed to prove to them, but because we now no longer needed a mediator. The veil of the temple was rent in two. Jesus Christ became our ultimate sacrifice for one and all time through laying down his life. That's the symbology behind the veil of the temple being rent in two. No longer do you need a high priest to come down and sacrifice a turtle dove for your sin atonement. But that sign was given not so they would understand, not so they would repent, but so that those unbelieving Judeans, Jews, and Israelites would have his blood on their head forever. Just as they asked for when they said, Give us Barabbas. We have no king but Caesar. Well, there are many things that have not changed over the last 2,000 years, and you will find that the God of this world is just that. And those that followed the God of this world are nothing but confused little ignoramuses who love coming along and telling you, well, you're wrong, but yet you can prove every single thing you preach, believe, and can substantiate it within the Word of God, but they can't. But they know one thing, and that's that you're wrong. Is that any different than what Pilate, Herod, and his band of Herodians did to Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Pilate, many people say, hey, he washed his hands, he must be innocent. But he wasn't innocent. Not from the blood that was shed. And that's the key I want you to understand this Sunday morning. There are two options for each and every person. And those options were given right there at the cross. Now you can be responsible for the blood of Jesus Christ. Responsible like the Jews are. Them and their children forever. Or you can be covered and or anointed with the blood of Jesus Christ. Which is where I hope you are, dear kinsfolk, because that's what we're striving to be. Israelite men, women, and children, called of God, not worthy of His grace, but accepting of it. Back to the text. He wasn't calling for Elijah. He was quoting King David in the 22nd Psalm. Verse 48. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. So right there, they're sitting and still requiring a sign. And even though they gave him a bruised reed dipped in vinegar in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, there was the sign that that wicked and perverse generation required, and they couldn't see the sign. What's the moral of that? The moral is the blind will never see, and Jesus Christ never taught any different. He said, they be the blind leaders of the blind, let them be, and they will both fall within the ditch. And that, dear kinsfolk, is a truth that we can bank upon. Verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. So, just like Luke says, one final cry, and then he gives up his spirit. And of course, from there, where does it go? Well, it goes to the earth for three days, which is in fulfillment of the book of Jonah. He then ascends to sit at the right hand of Father Yahweh, making him a king in the process. Meaning, he fulfilled several different prophecies. And actually, at the time of his death, 
he probably fulfilled more prophecies at an accelerated rate, more so than he did the entire time he lived. Already we've covered like six of them as he hung there in agony. And that's what's transpiring here. Verse 51 adds, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Now are these zombies walking around? Absolutely not. But this is no different than the transfiguration. This is no different than the very disciples seeing him with Moses and who? <laughs> exactly. While they're sitting there looking for Elijah, Elijah was already there. Elijah was part of it. And the Elijah prophecy was not to be fulfilled in 2014 by CI, like false prophets tell you. It was straightforwardly, according to this same gospel, fulfilled in John, the Baptist. So beware of those who come along and they want to push John out. Because the reality of it is, is he was to make straight the way. If you don't understand John, his baptism, and what it represents, then you're never going to understand what dying to yourself means. Dying to the world. And that's exactly what is represented through Jesus' crucifixion. More specifically, through his death. Matthew adds a little more. Not only does he say the veil of the temple was rent in twain, or two, cut in two, giving man access to the holiest of holies, but he adds to it that there was an earthquake, rocks broke, falling out of their positions, and many of the saints which slept arose. Verse 53, And came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. Huh. Now, if you're new to this ministry and read that, you'd probably be saying, now, that's not possible, but yet it is. And that's exactly what these Gospels account to. Jesus Christ, on his way to Emmaus, was walking with who? <sighs> Again, what we're seeing here is fulfillment of prophecy and the harmony of all four Gospels. They went into the city. They appeared to other people. And it was no different because this is exactly why the disciples run back to the upper room. Say, we saw Jesus Christ walking and talking with other prophets. Continuing on. Now, when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, according to Luke, the centurion says, surely this was a righteous man. According to Matthew, the centurion says, surely this was the Son of God. Is there any difference between the Son of God and a righteous man? Absolutely not. However, the way of the natural man is to come in and point that out like it's an inconsistency. Thank you for listening to the Covenant People's Ministry broadcast. If you have enjoyed hearing the message of the gospel and would like to be a part of our fellowship, or receive quarterly newsletters where you can order Pastor Visser's CD sermons, be sure to write to us at CPM, Post Office Box 256, Brooks, Georgia, 30205. You can also visit us on the web at covenantpeoplesministry.net, where our extensive audio section features numerous broadcasts, or you can easily listen to Pastor Visser by Godcast through your mobile audio device. Our sermons and videos are made possible by your tithes and offerings. If you wish to support this ministry, make checks or money orders payable to Covenant People's Ministry. 
Your donations help us to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel, wherever they may be found. Remember that Jesus Christ is our all, and is in all that have been renewed in His Holy Spirit. So we hope that you will allow Him to lead your life and help to build His church, so that when He returns, you will find faith upon this earth. We urge you to be a living example of Christian faith and apply His words to your lives. It has been a pleasure to have you with us, and now we will return to Pastor Visser's Bible study message. The point you need to take away from verse 54 of St. Matthew chapter 27 is this. When the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared, they believed, they understood then. They didn't understand at the point they were driving the nails in his feet and in his wrists. They didn't understand at the point that Pilate released Barabbas in place of Jesus Christ, who was God manifested the flesh. They didn't understand, but they understood then, and that was the point I was trying to make from Luke's take. They feared after the fact, because they realized they had completely screwed up. Verse 55, And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. Same exact thing that Luke says, pertaining to the death of Jesus Christ. These women were an integral part of Jesus' ministry. They did not walk with the other disciples. They did not teach like the other disciples. They did not do great miracles like the other disciples. But they were always there to what? To tend to and to minister to Jesus Christ and his disciples. Interesting of note is it would be a female who discovered the empty tomb. Interesting of note is it would be the females who believed Jesus Christ had bodily resurrected before the disciples, before people like Thomas who would come in and say, I'm not going to believe until I put my very finger in the side of Jesus Christ that was pierced. Also in fulfillment of another prophecy, that not a single bone should be broken. But that being a side note, again, you'll notice, now, half of the four Gospels we've covered all say that the women were there. When the male disciples had scattered. Okay? Continuing on. Among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's children. So, Mary was there, the Virgin Mary, because after all, James would be considered the half-brother of Christ. James would have been the biological child between Joseph and Mary, considered a brother and a disciple. Not only that, this Joses would be Judas, and or Jude, as you know him from our New Testament epistle. Not Judas Iscariot, that betrayer, but Jude, the brother of Christ, also sharing the same mother that Jesus Christ had. That is, the Virgin Maryam. And so, now that we've covered two of the four Gospels, what are some of the things we can point out right now? How many inconsistencies have we seen between the accounts? Well, I count a big goose egg. How many similarities do we see between these same accounts? I count almost every single one of them. From the very moment in which he gives up his spirit to the very moment in which he gives his final retort and his final teaching. All very similar. But how different is the youthful Mark's take? Because after all, he would have been the youngest disciple. You know, Luke was a latter second century Christian. Came along about 50 years after the fact. But what about Mark? 
Mark walked with Jesus Christ. He was youthful. He was the youngest of them all and also had the most energetic viewpoint pertaining to most of the miracles of Jesus Christ. Well, Mark's take begins in St. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So, that first verse already proves that he's saying the exact same thing that Luke and Matthew already taught. The specifics and the harmony between all the Gospels. The sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That would have been twelve to three o'clock in the afternoon. The exact moment when the Passover lambs were crucified for the sins of Israel. Verse 34 of St. Mark 15. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatane, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Gotta love the King's English. Why hast thou forsaken me? The statement in the Hebrew is straightforward. Why have you forsaken me? And it was the sentiment of King David. Did Jesus Christ feel forsaken? Or was Jesus Christ fulfilling that prophecy? Did King David feel forsaken of Yahweh God? And can Yahweh God truly leave or forsake you ever? No. Of course, Scripture promises that he can't. However, the thought can be there. And that's the thought that we need to fight against. Realizing that Yahweh God will never leave nor forsake you. But at times we may feel forsaken. Verse 35. And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calls Elijah. Same exact thing. Why? Why would they call for Elijah? Because they hadn't understood John had fulfilled the prophecies of Elijah. That last statement that's found towards the latter half of the Old Testament that says, I will send Elijah before that great and terrible day. They were still looking for it. John had already fulfilled it. And ironically, there's still some ignoramuses out there who are still looking for it. Even going as far as saying that C.I.R. the spirit of Elijah. (laughs) Impossible, especially if you deny water baptism, because that's the spirit of Elijah after all, common sense. Verse 36, And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar, and put it on a reed, and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Well, Matthew said, Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Mark says, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. But either way, the same sentiment is there. The same sentiment that was expressed in the 22nd Psalm, and that is, I am despised of the people. As Jesus Christ hung in agony, they said he believed in Yahweh God. Let Yahweh God deliver him from the cross. So we see that even until the moment that the sky was darkened, they were mocking Jesus Christ. They didn't realize. They realized after the fact. What can we learn from that? That many of us will have to follow the same exact path. Many of us will tow the same exact line. And I understand it's hard for us, dear kinsfolk, oftentimes, because there are people we want to know the truth, but you must understand, many of them will not understand until after you're gone. But, the point of being a parent, a pastor, a father, any of those things, is to make your thoughts known. Rebellion is something that's uncontrollable. But people who come back from rebellion need to be able to say, This person was right. 
dad was right. And rebellion is not the path. So, verse 37. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. So, identical to the other two accounts. You can easily see that all three of these accounts could have been pinned by the same exact person. We know Luke wanted to add clarity, so of course his would be different, almost more expansive than the others. We know Mark would have been youthful and would have been following afar off, because according to the account, well, they scattered, and they all went different directions. So Mark's take would have been from afar off. Naturally, he would not say what he said when he cried out and gave up the ghost. But then again, neither did the other two Gospels we've covered. Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. The bell of the temple was rent in two. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Because the way I presented this ties these two together. Luke says the centurion says this was a righteous man. Matthew says, surely this was the son of God. And here's Mark saying, Surely this righteous man was the Son of God. So Mark is saying exactly what Luke and Matthew both said. And that is this. The centurion understood. He realized he had egg on his face and he felt like a jackass because Yahweh God made him understand. Yahweh God shook the earth so that they would understand. And so it will stand for many of us And some of us will never be understood. Understand that as well. Some people out there are so hard-hearted, they're going to justify away and away until there's nothing left. Like that leaven of the Pharisees, which expands. Suddenly they come into the camp and they say, hey, you know what, Uh, the devil's not literal. Then the angels become non-whites. Then, obviously, God didn't create the angels. And it goes on and on and on. Circular reasoning. You throw one out, you've got to throw 20 other verses out as well. Truly this man was the Son of God. Verse 40 of St. Mark chapter 15. There were also women looking afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Lesser, and of Joses and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him, and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. So, what he's saying, that youthful author Mark, is that these women were there from the very beginning, from Galilee to Jerusalem. There were some there that followed Jesus Christ, and their job was to minister, to comfort, and or to tend to Jesus Christ. Perhaps this sheds light on why it would be Mary Magdalene who anointed Jesus Christ for burial using the very hairs of her head. And why Judas, Iscariot, would have issue with that. And say, hey, you know what? That bottle of oil could be sold for several pence. Give us some money. About the equivalent of about 50 cents at the time. And if what I've taught in the past was true, and that is that the umbilical cord or the foreskin would have been put within that alabaster box of ointment, then like that Hebrew midwife said, it would have been invaluable. But that wasn't the point of the oil. It wasn't to make a holy grail. It wasn't to have the blood of Jesus Christ. But rather, it was so he could be anointed for death 
in the same exact fluids that he was born in. That's a study for another day. Whom, when he was in Galilee, they followed him, and ministered unto him, and many other women, which came up with him unto Jerusalem. What that means is there were many women who followed along with the other women as he went from Galilee into the Gadarenes all around that area, working his way almost in a circular fashion until he hit Jerusalem. And they were still there. While the men had scattered, while many of them were in hiding, the women were still together. And that's not trying to espouse the virtues of these women. It's to try and point out the differences between them and why it would be God in His infinite wisdom who would call them, who would choose them. Fulfillment of prophecy, like always. Now there's still one more account that I'd like to cover, and time is getting away from me, unfortunately. But I want to quickly take a look at the death of Jesus Christ from John's Gospel, chapter 19. So please turn there. Now you're going to see John's is a little different because John as a Gospel deals mostly with the spiritual end. Luke as a Gospel deals with the flesh. And Mark as a Gospel deals with some point in between. That is, for the new found convert. But John's deals with the Spirit. Beginning in St. John, chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. What is that? That's the 13th Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in John. It's found in the 69th Psalm. I thirst. This is why they would bring him the reed full of vinegar. Many of the non-canonized texts don't use the word vinegar or gall. They use the word urine. So we don't know whether that's true or not. But either way, Jesus Christ's physical body did thirst for being on the cross for so long and for the agony he had been going through. Christ taught that we cannot deny any child a simple cup of water. What we see is the evil of the Romans at the foot of the cross. An evil that was foretold and foreordained long ago by King David. At least 3,000 years before this point. So he says, I thirst in fulfillment of prophecy. After Jesus knowing all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Next verse. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled the sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Interesting, is it not? Because the 22nd Psalm expresses the same exact sentiment. So for all intents and purposes, it's a safe bet that Jesus Christ did quote the entire 22nd Psalm from verse 1 until the very end. But after he received the vinegar, he says, it is finished. What is finished? The Mosaic Law? The end of the world? Time? I'll tell you what was finished, dear kinsfolk. And we already covered that in the youth of Christ. When the Virgin Mary and Joseph came and they found the young Jesus Christ in the temple of Jerusalem, they said, your stepfather's worried. How could you make us worry this way? And Jesus Christ said, I am about my father's business. Meaning it began then, most likely earlier, but most assuredly at the age of 12, And right here, when the final prophecy of his living life was fulfilled, Jesus Christ says, it is finished. So what is finished? 
Jesus being about his father's business. Continuing on. When Jesus therefore received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, meaning a Passover, dear kinsfolk, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Understand this. The Jews knew the law of God. They knew one of the prophecies pertaining to the Messiah would be not one of his bones shall be broken. In fact, that was the very reason they pierced his side. So the Jew goes after Jesus Christ has given up the ghost and they want to circumvent Yahweh's will. They want to paint another Christ, if you will, and they say, you know what? You need to go and break Jesus' legs. Why would they do that? Well, they knew. The Romans didn't know. But they knew the prophecy well enough, the devil's children, to pervert it. At least, hope they could. Did they? Verse 32 of St. John chapter 19. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first. That would be the first malefactor or thief that was crucified alongside him. Continuing on. And of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was dead already. And they break not his legs. In what? In fulfillment of prophecy. Why would they do this? Because the Roman way was to crucify anybody who was a dissident, anybody who was a rebel. This was their method of corporal punishment. And not only would they nail men and women up to the cross with nails and leave them in the sun all day, but while they stood there, they had to, with bloody hands, hold the weight of their entire body up. Using mostly their feet, which in the case of Jesus Christ would have been nailed to the cross as well. So, the purpose of breaking the legs is to finish them off, to kill them. Because those who were hanging on for dear life, once their legs were broken, well, they would drop, and the full weight of their body would be put on their hands, and it would be instant death. It's common sense. But when they come to Jesus Christ, they realize, hey, he's dead already. So they broke the malefactor's leg on the right. They broke the malefactor's leg on the left. But they left Jesus Christ alone. To the chagrin of the Jews who wanted his legs broken. Who were most likely hurriedly saying, get out there before he dies and break his legs. Because we understand that not a single bone would be broken of the Messiah. So, no matter how much this wicked world and the devil's children tried to circumvent God's will... It didn't happen. Verse 34. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. Now why blood and water? Well, it's actually quite simple when you think about it. You could point out the obvious, and that is 80% of our body is water. But Jesus Christ said, drink from me and you'll never thirst again. Jesus Christ is that rock. That rock that followed us during the Exodus, well, that rock would be Christ. That same rock that Moses struck, bringing forth water, that gave the children of Israel deliverance during the time of the Exodus. So, when they pierce the side of Yahshua Messiah, not only does blood usher forth, but so also does water. 
What type of water? Living water. The same exact water that Yahshua Messiah promised his disciples. And he that saw it bear record. And his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true. For ye might believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Where's that written? That's in Numbers chapter 9 verse 12. Also in the 34th Psalm verse 20. He pegged it on both ends for double emphasis. Double witness, if you will. But the truth of the matter is that is why they did not break his bones. It was in fulfillment of prophecy and the Jews, of course, knew that. Why? It's Numbers. It's in the Torah. It's in the five books of Moses. The Pentateuch, for short. That would be what the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees all profess to teach in Jerusalem. No different than it is today, because you have a million and one people out there all saying, Jesus is this, Jesus is that. Even worse are those churches that will come in and say, Jesus isn't God, He's the Son of God. Or Jesus isn't perfect, we are. They come along and they reinvent God after their own image. Do you honestly think it was any different when Christ came? He went into the temple of Jerusalem to draw them away from the traditions of men. He went into these lowercase synagogues to bring them out. Yahweh God cannot be housed. Yahweh's word is truth. And Jesus Christ was that same word. In fact, John's very gospel that we're in right now begins on that note. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And in verse 14 of St. John chapter 1, that word became flesh and dwelt among men. Jesus Christ fulfilled the word. He fulfilled the prophecy. Why? He was it. He gave the law. He gave the prophecy and knew exactly what needed to be fulfilled. As he hung on the cross, he did not doubt Yahweh God. He did not feel that Yahweh God forsook him. Because after all, that would be a form of deicide. Yahweh God cannot forsake himself, especially in fulfillment of prophecy. So common sense must be employed. Final verse of St. John's take pertaining to the death of Jesus Christ would be in verse 37 of chapter 19. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on whom they pierced. Where's that? Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 and also Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. Look at it. The holes was in his hands. They shall look upon him who they pierced. So imagine... The Jew comes in and they say, we need to break the legs of these uh, criminals here, these rebel rousers. Because they did not want the prophecy fulfilled that said, not a bone shall be broken. So, a wise centurion or a Roman comes along and says, you know what, we're not going to break his legs. We're going to do him one better. We're going to pierce him through the side. Also, in fulfillment of prophecy. And I just provided the text for you. What's the moral behind that? That even when wicked men think they are winning, they are losing. That God will always win. Yahweh God is always in control. And every single act, move, and teaching of Jesus Christ was calculated. It was in fulfillment of prophecy, not the law, but to codify it. To one up. Remember, dear beloved kinsfolk, that when Jesus Christ came, he added several new commandments. Those additions, in addition to his laying down for one and all time, a blood sacrifice, willfully, 
also in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, codified the law in saying, it is finished. He fulfilled it. He one-upped it. And so, dear kinsfolk, I hope I was able to provide for you a brief overview pertaining to the death of Jesus Christ from all four Gospels, including the Gospel of Luke. Today will be the final sermon in the Gospel of Luke, at least for a while, not in general, but for a while. Because in the upcoming year of 2015, we intend on going in different directions preaching more Old Testament prophecies, and trying to prove Jesus Christ from that angle. Now, this year, 2014, I taught Luke trying to prove how many prophecies Jesus Christ fulfilled in his birth, his youth, his life, and his death. I believe I was able to do that. Now, I would like to be able for the next year to prove that the entire Old Testament, from the very beginning, at least Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, until the end of Malachi, are all testimony to a coming Redeemer. And in the process of doing that, it's my hope that you will be able to understand the Christ denier who is out there and their exact reasons for denying. There are many people out there who deny Jesus Christ. Perhaps even worse than denying what he openly taught in the Word of God is those who deny him in lifestyle. Now, there are those who do that. They come in, they say, hey, I'm CI. And every single thing they do is worse than these children of the devil out there. Their mouths are more vile. The slander they put forth is just as unsubstantiated. And the doctrines that they promote under the guise of scholarship seemingly always points back to the Talmud. Whether it's no Satan, Satan's your flesh, whether it's no angels or whether it's this new one now that God does not create evil. All of those teachings are found in the Babylonian Talmud. Not the scripture, not the word of God. Yahweh God it is who creates and controls evil. Yahweh God it is who created even Satan. And Satan is not a non-white dear kinsfolk. Eve is not a race mixer. Use common sense. Go back to our forefathers And please, for the love of Yahweh, stop listening to these Judaizers out there. We know them by their fruits. It's really that simple. If they can't teach, all they can do is pervert, mark them, shake the dust off your feet, and go your merry way. And so, until next year, dear kinsfolk, and God knows when, this is Pastor Visser once again from Brooks, Georgia, and the Covenant People's Ministry, wishing you and yours Great studies. Thank you for listening this year. War for Christ. Amen. Covenant People's Ministry. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you have enjoyed studying with us. Remember the words that Christ has given, that wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We hope that you will gather together with us at the online ministry's website, which is covenantpeoplesministry.com and share your Christian testimonies or ask questions and enjoy biblical fellowship. You can also order CDs of Pastor Visser's Bible Studies and enjoy many other Christian resources through the church's website or write to Covenant People's Ministry, Post Office Box 256, Brooks, Georgia, 30205. We thank you for your prayers and offerings and pray that all of you have been touched by these messages and continue to spread the word of the gospel with your friends and family. 
Thanks again, and may the love of Christ abide in you and yours forever and ever. Amen.